0: Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear.
1: The sad part from one of the commentaries I read is that the question is, what do they trade? I did a deep dive on that, and there's a lot of little stuff, but what kept coming up is that they traded in slaves. Now, when I hear that, for us, we go, oh, no. For them, that was just, that's just doing business. You know, that was just a way of life that they did that. But it was a trade city, nonetheless. That means there was money going back and forth, a lot of people. Now, watch this now. The gospel comes into all of that, and it doesn't automatically change it and turn it into a holy city. All it did was bring the gospel to those people. Stay with me. That means some of those people, in some measure that were involved in the trade industry, maybe they didn't officially grab this person and make them a slave, but somehow they're connected. I think it's quite possible that they found their way to Christ and were led into a Bible-teaching church like the church at Ephesus. So I want you to think about the baggage that these people are carrying into the church, just like some of us have baggage, and they're trying to clear up all of that. But it said it also went to a temple city. Now, that's kind of interesting, too, because there was one big um, temple there that worshipped Diana, goddess, a female god, goddess of the, of the Ephesians, she was notified as. Now, I'm not going to open that up. A lot of you have wonderful, wonderful uh, software packages and Bible study. So do that. Find out a little bit more about her. Don't spend all your time on that, but just know that there's a temple there. So we could say this. The city happened to be a very religious city, however it was. But watch this. When you have a big thing like a religious temple, some people don't go there to worship it. They just want to see it. It's like um, people that would go to um, the temple in Salt Lake City. doesn't mean they're Mormons. They just want to, they heard it's huge and the music is great, and I just want to go see this stuff. And so again, it's going to bring a lot of people into the city. So that's why it goes into a tourist city. Now, what I didn't tell you is besides this big thing, Diana, and in, in the temple there, they also had an amphitheater like a Colosseum big thing, that uh, they would do chariot races. i'm think about how, how big that had to be. They had huge plays. In fact, it was so large, it could hold 25,000 people. So that means the area was an, an athletic competition, sports-minded, complex city. That means there was religious stuff going on. There was trade going on. I'm sure there was a lot of political stuff because everybody wants to get their hand on those pies. And I'm looking at all of that, and I'm saying, Ephesus, this ain't a whole lot different than Orlando. Think about it. We're a tourist city. We're the home of the Mouse House. Uh, and if you work for Disney, I love you. Okay, I'm not, I'm, I'm not hitting you on that. But what I am saying, though, is that, again, there in the culture, it's it's just a, the church is a microcosm of the macrocosm. All right, Carol and I were in uh, just outside of Albany, but, I mean, it was like a suburb um, called Latham, if you know anything about the area. And I was speaking at a Christian school there. And on our way to the car after speaking, Carol says, this is the strangest-looking Christian school I've ever seen. There were only three Anglo-Saxons in it. The rest were African-American, or they were of the Middle Eastern uh, descent. All right, And Carol was saying, did they target those people? And I said, I don't know a whole lot about the schools, so I don't know if I can accurately answer that. But I sensed this, that they just want anybody who wants to have their kids trained in the Word of God that will fit the paradigm of that school. And now what you're seeing in the school is nothing more than the microcosm and the macrocosm of Albany. And then if I had the time and I don't, I bet if we went around, I shouldn't say bet as a Christian. I would imagine if we would go around and we looked at a lot of other cities, we're seeing a whole lot of different ethnic groups coming in that are now in those cities. And if we attracted them, we'd be a more blended or mosaic type of a fellowship. Stay with me on this. That's why I'm so excited about ESL. Because we have all different kinds of people coming in, we love them because God created them, God made them. Whatever they think, it's it's about grace, not race. So we try to reach them for Christ, and we would want to have that even in our own church, and we want to make them feel welcome. So then I thought, here tourist, how many tourists do you think Ephesus had? I have no idea, but I do know this. Yesterday I had some time in the afternoon, and I did a little study on how many tourists do you think come to Orlando in nineteen. 19- excuse me, in 2015, there were 14.97 million tourists that came in. In 2016, there were 16.06 million tourists that came. In 2017, there was over 17 million people, and they're projecting that we could even hit 19 million people, because exponentially, that's how many people are passing through here. So, um, When I see that, they all come to Orlando for one day, then they get back on the plane and leave? No, no. They're all here because of, watch this now, all of our different industries that we have in Orlando. That means those industries have to have support people, whether they build hotels, whether they manage hotels, whether they clean hotel rooms, whether they bring in the food, whether they let you on the rides, do your own thinking. So you could imagine how many people are involved in the entertainment industry just in Orlando. Orlando. And all those people that I mentioned, and by the way, the religious people, I mean, I think we're, we're the Southeast Vatican, you know what I mean, of Christians. I say that now, we have all these people that are coming by. Some will live here. Some will fly by, fly in and out. All of them need the gospel. All of those people are going to bring all their, watches now, Burdens from their jobs, their dysfunctional families, their backgrounds, and they're all spilling out there. And those beginning Christians with Paul gave the gospel to them. A church kind of popped up, and there they are. And now we're over here, we're looking back at them, we're saying that's the church of Ephesus, when we really could be saying, and that's the church of Orlando. That's us right here, a circle. So this, this study is incredibly relevant to us. So let's go a little bit further here. So, so that's that's the church at Ephesus. There's a whole, whole lot more I can say, but I'm running out of time. This does need to be said. And then I'll get to how it relates to us more specifically. This is very important. Okay, you got Ephesus. It's just a rocking and rolling city out there in the Middle East. All right, you, got, you got that. All right. <clears throat> now, what happens is Paul comes to know Christ as Savior, like I told you. And he then decides, I need to go and share that message everywhere. So he became a mini-missionary. Maybe a Maxi missionary, I don't know. And so he's traveling around and he goes to Ephesus. By the will of God, I think God led him perhaps by the heart passion of Paul himself to reach people knowing that there's a city that's a very uh, strategically placed city that needs the gospel. So he goes there and he spends three years there, uh, leading people to Christ, getting some leadership together, which I really believe he was doing. And then he really pumps them up good. And then there's a lot of conflict. So it's about time for him to leave to go somewhere else and that he has a church there. Now let's stay with me. So while he's traveling around, he really has a burden for those people, and he decides that he needs to go back and at least encourage them. So on his way back, the best he could do, maybe because of timing, we don't know everything, but he calls out the elders, which are the head hogs at the trough of the the church of Ephesus. And he says, come on over here, we're going to meet. And then he, one more time, he does this. He reminds them what he did when he was there to start with, what he taught, what his heart was when he was there, so that they too would capture that same passion for the gospel. And then he says, don't forget. While I was with you guys, I warned you that there's going to be people inside and outside the church that's going to bring you down with false teaching. And then he ended by prayer, and those guys just hugged his neck for all of that. And amen to that. Alright, so did all of that. Now he leaves. And while he leaves, he now realizes I, I got to do another thing. I- I've got to have make sure that there's, there's a sharp guy there to hit up that church. So one of those guys was Timothy. I think it's quite likely he was just one of the elders. I'm not really sure exactly, but I do know this. He didn't write something to all the other elders. He didn't write it to Timothy. So Timothy did have some reason to get that letter, amongst other things, because Timothy was known as the pastor of that church. And he writes to him again. And you ought to read two letters, not one letter, two letters that's in Holy writ. Could have been more. But the ones that God said I wanted you to know for today, scripturally, our first Timothy and second Timothy, getting him tuned up so that he then could tune up the church at Ephesus. You talk about God having a passion for that church. You talk about Paul having a passion for that church. It never left him. He wanted those people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. Watch this now, with a legacy. Now, the most tragic thing is when you go to the last book of the Bible, which is called the book of Revelation, and then there's a commentary on that church years later, and it said this, I have this against you, Ephesus. What's so bad about Ephesus after they've had all that privilege? You left your first love. That's an interesting statement. So then I go back in my mind, what's the history of circle all the way to today? If we're not where we ought to be, could we have left our first love? Our first love isn't love for soul winning. Our first love is for the Lord and then for those whom he loves. And have we um, have we have a skewed view of what real biblical love is all about? I don't know. I'm not putting it on a guilt trip, but I do know if it could happen to Ephesus, who had a whole lot more going forth than, than I think I have and we have here, in the sense that he had these guys that were apostles. I don't want us to lose our first love. And so that is very, very critical when I think of the city of Ephesus. Well, let's go back to the passage. You're saying, Stan, if you go this slow, We'll never get through Ephesians. Well, I, I'll i speed it up, but you have to know who he's writing to. Then he says, and you who are faithful in Christ Jesus. In there, you're going to put you and me. Who's he writing to? You and me. He wrote to the people of Ephesus. Then he wrote to those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And so when you put you and me there, it's talking about those people back then, but by extension, because you have the word and, that would be beyond the people at Ephesus, beyond the Christians at Ephesus. It'd be, and who are faithful in Christ. It could refer directly to them because they were faithful in Christ. But most scholars will definitely tell you it goes beyond that. It wasn't a book just written only for them. Some even say it could have been a circular letter going around to a lot of other churches. And because sometimes they say that the name Ephesus might not even be in some of the manuscripts. But the bottom line is it is for us today. So when I look at that phrase, and faithful. That identifies someone who knows Christ as saving. Now watch what I'm about to say. It doesn't say because you're faithful, you are now in Christ. It says those who are faithful in Christ. So that means you are already faithful because you are in Christ. So your faithfulness didn't come to get into Christ. Your faithfulness doesn't come to keep you in Christ. Your faithfulness is because you are in Christ. Now for some of you newbies here, you're saying, what does it mean to be in Christ? And now you're going to come up with your own definitions. And uh, And I applaud you for thinking more deeply. But actually, the faithful in Christ, you might want to look at it this way. When I trusted Christ as my Savior, watch this now, Scripture says I've been accepted into the beloved one, which would be Christ. So being in Christ happens the moment I trust Christ as Savior. I believe in Christ. I trust in Christ. I depend on Christ. So I'm now believing in Him. So I'm now in Christ. And so now it would be for those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior. So it would be for us today. There's a good book if you want to get it, if you don't have it. It's written by Ruth Paxson. It's a classic noun. It's called The Wealth, Walk, and Warfare of a Believer. And she says that word in, in the whole book of Ephesians, is probably the smallest, most powerful word in the entire letter to the Ephesian church. You are now in Christ, accepted in the Beloved One. In It's used over 15 times how powerful that is. Now, when I look at this, I look at two worlds that are going on. Look up here again, if you will. He said those of you who are in Ephesus and those who are faithful in Christ. So he's writing to those who know Christ in Ephesus and he's writing to those today, like you and me hearing my voice, that you trusted Christ, you are in Christ today. So now we have in the world and then we have in Christ. How many of you you like to um, snorkel? How many of you like to go snorkeling? If you haven't gone snorkeling and the water's warm and it's safe and all of that, I encourage you to go snorkeling. It's like when you get underwater and you begin to look at the beautiful, colorful fish, especially when you're on a reef like we've done in Hawaii and in other places, and then you see the colored coral and not that white stuff that looks like somebody's dead brain. I'm talking about a real colorful coral out there. You're under there, and people, they, that, they live for going snorkeling because they do that. Now, one thing when they like to snorkel, they like to look at it a long time. They don't like to go... They like to just keep their head underwater. So when they do that, they have that little snorkel tube that they have going with their goggles. Sometimes they'll use some fins in the back. And while they're doing they're doing that so they can stay down there. Now, why am I telling you this dumb story and eating up what little time I have left? Is because this is a good illustration that I'm, I'm only talking to Christians now. You that are not a Christian, just kind of watch what we're saying here. You're going to understand again a little bit more why we're so different and we view we're a little bit different. When I'm, when I'm underwater... And I want to see I cannot survive underwater because I'm not a fish. So what I need to do is I need to take something from my world that keeps me alive, which would be air, and I somehow have to mainline that to me, whether it's a scuba tank or a snorkel tube, you know, to be able to do that because I can't last in this world and survive playing the world system their way. All right? So I need to bring it in from another world. So when I look at all of this... I say, I am in Orlando. I get that. But my real world is in heaven. I need to have a Christian worldview. Christ is everything to me. So I need to suck from Him the right way to think about life, the right way to perceive truth, the right way to live my life. And I get that from the book. And so now I'm in Christ. Yeah, that's another world that I'm in. But I'm also in Orlando. So I'm basically in two places at one time. But I'm only going to be able to survive with what I get from my in Christ position, which now moves into some heavenly blessings and all of that, which we'll just allude to for just a moment later on. So I just want you to know we are in Orlando, but we are also in Christ. Let's go back to our notes for just a moment. And um, as you do this, I want to give you the second point. These will go much more quickly. So here we go. The pronouncement. He then says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you could take this to the bank. In nearly every letter that Paul writes, he always starts out by saying, Grace to you and peace toward our Lord Jesus Christ. I think he was a very wise writer. I think he responded well to the ministry of the Holy Spirit because before he started to teach them something, he wanted to put their mind on Christ and the greatness of God before he then uh, taught them the truth. I like to say he always dipped his arrows in honey before he ever shot them. I think he was like Jesus when Jesus says, Grace and truth. Grace and then truth. And he always began that way. So as I step back, that's how I want to deal with people. I want to deal with my wife, with grace. And then maybe a little bit of, of instruction. Hopefully not correction. She doesn't need any. Of that. But for all of us, that's a good way to say that. But now we choose the word grace. What an interesting word. Grace is God's kindness toward undeserving people. Grace is God's kindness to undeserving people. I don't deserve it, but I get it. And I get it from God, and you know we throw that word grace out a lot today, don't we? The word grace period. Some of you that pay your your credit card off at the end of the month, you get the bill, but you have so many days to pay it, so you don't have to do the interest. That's called a grace period. And some of us um says, oh, she walks with so much grace. I I wasn't, I can't walk that way up here. I just I walk like a man, but she walks with so much grace. We might even say grace at table when you thank the Lord for food, at least privately. And then um as I look at that, I'm reminded of a lady. Her name is Princess Grace. And then I think of Elvis Presley's place. What was it called? Boy, you said that real loud. You know about that place. So I thought, okay, Grace is around me. Maybe I need some little pegs here. I know this is going to get a little bit cute. When I think of Princess Grace, I want to think of the king of grace. When I think of Grace Land, I want to think of the place of grace or the land of grace which is at the cross where Jesus died. When you think of grace, period, you may want to just think grace, period. It's just grace. So however you want to look at it, folks, grace is all around us, but the only sustaining grace is going to come from the Lord. Now think about this. Grace is the spring. It's the thing that bubbles up. That's the grace that bubbles up. Watch this now. Peace comes from grace. When I am experiencing God's grace, and I can get all of God's grace, and it's God's grace that's operational in my life, it's because of peace. So grace is the spring. Peace is the stream from that grace. And they both go together. If you have a spring, but no stream from it, you don't have a spring any longer. It's just a dried up hole in the ground. And if you have a stream, generally it's going to come from a spring. A water place, a spring. Not not all of them, I understand that. But mostly, they're gonna come. We, we, we ought to know it here. How many towns around are on our, winter springs? Okay, we got them at Cypress Gardens and all those spring, silver springs are all over here. They're springs. You get that. Peace is another interesting word because it means tranquility. A well-being, watch this, between God and a well-being, a sense of well-being inside of us. So my well-being with peace with God means I'm not an enemy of God any longer. He's not my enemy. I mean, you know, he and I, we've got it together now. And how we got it together now is when Jesus died on the cross for this wicked old sinner and offered to me eternal life in heaven. So now he took away all my sins, so there's no reason for God to be angry with me as far as etern- eternality. So now I- I'm okay with God. I-, I made peace with God. A lot of people on their deathbed, I made peace with God. How'd you do that? Well, I just said, I'm sorry. You know, no, there's only one way to have peace with God is by trusting Christ as your Savior. Because unless you do all of that, all the rest of this stuff is like telling God, I don't need you, God. I did it myself. I did it my way. I did better. I'm not a bad guy, but I did it my way. And God says, you got to say to Him, there's nothing you do. You don't deserve anything. For by grace are you saved through faith. That it's not of yourself. It's a gift of God. You can't brag about this thing. When you come to Him and when you trust Him, then you've got that grace from Him. And that stream is that peace with Him. But once you get that, now you can have the day-to-day sense of well-being. Because now that you have it with God for eternity, now you can have it moment by moment by moment when you choose to, I call it, live by the book, (laughs) live by the Bible. You can have that peace. Let's go to the source now. It says the source is going to be God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. You may want to circle the word and in there. I want to clear this up for some of you. When you hear the word God our Father, then you hear, and the Lord Jesus Christ, you think of two people. I get that because you see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We use the word Trinity. Trinity means three entities or three. So there are, you know, three with the Spirit thrown in there. In this case, you have God the Father, God the Son. So there's two. So I get that this and that. So some people will say, well, you see, Jesus is kind of less than God. You know, God is the Almighty God. And Jesus is the mighty God, little less. You don't put the word all in front of him. And that's not the case. They're the same person. It's God in this. This is a dumb illustration. It may not totally work for you, but I think it might help you. What I say to you, um, Walt Disney and the founder of Disney World, we already know Walt Disney is the founder of it. It's not Walt Disney and then you have another guy over here that founded Disney World. They're all the same. But we say this and that meaning the same person. That's what this is. Now, don't go too far into that. All I'm wanting you to know is this. Watch carefully. The, the source of our spring is the deity. The stream, the source of the stream is the spring who's connected to the deity. So my grace And peace that I'm experiencing comes from God. So when you walk out this door, I want you to remember God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you worship Him no matter what you're going through. If His grace can save you no matter how bad you are for all your sin, His grace can take care of you when you do sin now through confession and give you the power to do what you ought to do. And it comes with never having to break the peace with God because you've already settled that when you trusted Christ and what Christ did for you on the cross. and Now you can have day by day peace knowing that He's large and in charge, and He's near and near, near and dear to us. Now let's go to the praise. Long bite here, don't worry about it because I'm just giving you an introduction for next week because next week we're going to start um, a series in this book on seven blessings of highly elected people. you want to be here that. It goes on and it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens." Ooh, isn't that great? Now, everything that God gave to his son by an inheritance, we get what Christ got because we are now where? In Christ. So everything that's of God went to his son. So they're all the same anyway. It's so mystical here. But now we have it too, all of that. Now, does that mean I can walk on water? No, because I don't need to. Does that mean that I can... Do like that and heal somebody like some people think. No, Not about me, but other people think they can do that. You can't do that. But I don't need all of that junk because all that does is take care of me for this life. I want to have what I need in this life for the next life. And those are my spiritual blessings. Have you ever thought about who the richest people are in the world? Here they are, 11 of them. See if you can remember any of these. David Koch has 48.3 billion people. Charles Koch, his brother, has 48.3 billion dollars. Michael Bloomberg, $52 billion. Larry Ellison, $60 billion. Carlos Slim, $68 billion. Mark Zuckerberg, $73 billion. I don't know what it'll be like in a couple of months, but that's what it is now. All right. Amancio Ortega, $78 billion. Warren Buffett, $85 billion. Bill Gates got bumped, so he's $92 billion. The next one with $120 billion, I think $120 billion is Jeff Bezos. But you know, when I looked at and I did this research, there was somebody left off of it, so I had to do a deeper dive, and I found out who was number one. You want to know who number one is? Number one, richest person in the world, is a believer in Jesus Christ. You could put your name there. Who is the richest person in the world? It's going to be you. Now you're not going to have it in dollars and cents. You're not going to have a mansion. You're not going to have a new car, maybe. But what you're going to have is something that is so much better because when your car is stolen or rots or when your house burns down and when you have all these other problems your health is caving in around you I want you to know you are still rich in Christ because you have heaven as your home and all that is wrapped up in His blessing.